breaking through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbinder, powered by Moms Rising. We have a really interesting show for you again this week. I'm so glad you're listening. We start out continuing our coverage of Netroots Nation in Chicago, and then we dive in with two stellar leaders, um, one from the NEA, National Education Association, about the attack on parents and teachers and how we can fight back. And also we hear about some stories of hope, of wins in purple states, and get some tips on how you can make those wins happen in any state. Now we're going to talk with our first guest live recorded at Netroots Nation, which was in Chicago this year. Netroots Nation is when the progressive organizations from across the country come together to share ideas, to connect, to build our democracy, and to build that better future. Right now, if you want to watch and learn about some of the Netroots happenings, you can go to the Netroots Nation Facebook page or any of their social media, and you can download and look at a lot of the panels and a lot of the speakers, and you can hear what people are speaking out about Speaking of speaking out, right now, our guest that we're hearing live from Netroots Nation is Melissa Byrne. She's the founder of the Project Springboard group, but she's way more than that. She also is the person who was the first person to really build toward addressing the student loan crisis in the United States of America. When she started talking about the student loan crisis, hardly anyone was talking about it. And through connecting person to person, through building change over time, Melissa Byrne has pulled forward the entire progressive community and many elected leaders into addressing the student loan crisis. Right now, we're going to jump in with Melissa. Welcome back to Breaking Through with me, Christian Ralph Finkbeiner, live from Nutroots Nation in Chicago with the one, the only, the super Melissa Byrne, who has brought you forgiveness from student loans and the whole campaign to make your student loans for college better. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Kristen. It's great to see you in city after city at Nutroots Nation. <laughs> Chicago is a great city to be in. It's an awesome city. I was actually born here, so I just feel so at home. I only lived here until I was three years old, but I love Chicago. But I also love what you're doing. Many people saw what happened with the U.S. Supreme Court overturning... Yes, boo! Overturning the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. But hope is not lost. Why should we not lose our hope? We should not lose our hope because when you're doom and gloom, one, you definitely can't win. Yes. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> and you always do a great job of modeling and demonstrating that. No, 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 no. We can always find a way to win. doesn't matter how, how dark skies things may look. But That's because I work with you. <laughs> and we're, we're lucky to have a president who, you know, he, he seems to excel when he's being underestimated. That's kind of been the theme of his administration. And it was the day that the really it was announced that these six right wing GOP operatives, they're not justices, they are they are just straight up GOP operatives, decided to invalidate Biden's student loan relief that was using the HEROES Act. Less than five hours later, President Biden was standing in the Roosevelt room of the West Wing saying JK, we're trying again, and they immediately signed the paperwork to start the process using the Higher Education Act to explore what um, cancellation and relief they can do through that process. And it is moving fast because next week they have the first hearing and then the first round of comments are due. And, you know, this process will take a while. 
and it's frustrating that because of the choices of GOP funders, the relief that people were promised, not just people, it's like 40 million people. It's a huge number, huge, huge, huge numbers. That's almost as many people who live in all of LA County. Um, there, it's being denied and delayed. And that, that really is terrible to think that politics is more important than people's lives. Terrible, awful, very bad. And a plan B for getting student, student loan forgiveness is in place. So what can people do to help that happen? Sure. Um, if you're listening, you should go to regulations.gov and you can click on the, there's a box that says the Department of Education public comment for, no, for notice, and, um, notice and comment. And on that page, you can submit a comment letting the administration know that this process for Plan B needs to have the, the president's promise from last August, which is 10K of cancellation for everybody under a certain income threshold or 20K if you had a Pell Grant. The promise from last August needs to be the floor. They can do more. We will, you know. We'll, it's the floor, yeah, not the ceiling, yeah, people. We're starting know, we there. Will, We're starting there. We will, of course, accept if they do more. That's, you know, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll you know, we'll, you know, we'll be thrilled if they do more. But I think it's really, because it, no one should lose what they were promised. Because Absolutely. it was a promise. People made lifestyle decisions. Like, people were able to buy a home. Folks were starting to have kids. People were, you know, it's hard to, you know, you're talking about moms rising. I think you know from your membership what it's like for moms and you know, they're probably you probably have members who would want to have a second kid or a third kid, or even the first, first kid, or even the first kid. Yeah. But this debt, and the reason why we have this debt in the first place is because Ronald Reagan and others didn't like that higher education was becoming more than just like the children of the white male children of rich people, and all of this debt really just goes back to the idea of wanting to put barriers on higher education, which ties we into. You know, can't talk about the student debt decision without mentioning the attacks on affirmative action that happened the day before. So it was a sad week for higher education equity. Very, very, very sad week, but we are not giving up. And we're not giving up hope. We're not giving up on change. We're pushing forward and we're making sure that education is accessible and equitable for everyone. So when we think about that, given the two U.S. Supreme Court decisions of doom that recently happened, where do you see both of those moving together so that we can make sure that we're breaking down the barriers to education moving forward? So student loan forgiveness is about in the past. And we also need to keep breaking down the barriers to education moving forward for the children who are rising now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why one thing that's been great about the discourse around higher education in the last year, even if some of it is like more concern trolley, is people are finally saying like, well, what about the cost of college? And I'm like, that's awesome. You want to talk about like, that's why we're here in the first place is because we need to have free public college. We need to have it where if someone wants to become a doctor, they don't have 400 grand in debt. Like I think people like being able to go to the dentist and we need more dentists that will do general dentistry, not just like the super subspecialties because they have 600 grand in debt to become a dentist and people are just being bogged down and we need to get to that. And we have states that are leading. You have New Mexico, which is one of the poorest states in the country um, where they have an amazing Latina governor and they passed free public college about a year and a half, two years ago. And in their first year of implementing the program, they saw a 4% increase in enrollment. And this is when other states are seeing a, a decline in enrollment. Our friends in Minnesota just passed free public college. Um, it's a, a smaller program what New Mexico did, 
but they're going to, you know, and I bet it's going to be so successful that in a couple of years they're going to expand it. You have North Dakota and South Dakota are whining because Minnesotans might stay in state instead of going out of state to their schools. And it's like, yo, then you should make your colleges free too. So I think that this is going to be a big part of it. Um, UNC just announced uh, a free college program. I think Ohio State is pushing towards it. And a big part of what's going to have to happen with this is also recruitment. We need to make sure that the decision around affirmative action doesn't adversely affect people applying. And we need to support and ensure that students of color are being encouraged to apply and being supported along the way, especially if they're first-generation college students. And for people who are listening, they're like, Melissa Byrne is it. She is it. She has single-handedly pulled this issue in front of the President of the United States of America, single-handedly moved change. How can they get involved in supporting what you're doing, you're organizing, and your change? Yep. So you can, well, one, there's a lot of people. I pre, I like love uh, Kristen's support for me, but, you know, there's a lot of people that were supportive and engaged, especially Moms Rising. They put together an amazing briefing book of moms and they got that story into the hands of like different parts of the White House and it was noticed. And I think for supporting my work, you can go to cancelstudentdebt.org, sign up for the list. You can like hop on the Act Blue site and chip in some money. And most importantly, talk to everybody that you know about why higher education is important. And by higher education, we mean whether you want to become a welder, you want to become a teacher, you just want to get a little bit of extra skills past high school, there's a space for everybody to be able to get the skills that you need so you can have the path that brings you fulfillment and joy and we can have this really amazing beloved community. I love the idea of the amazing beloved United community. You bring that to all of your work and you do a lot of actions and member engagement in front of the U.S. Capitol, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, inside the U.S. Capitol. What's your favorite action recently that you thought created the most change, made you laugh, and brought hope? Well, a couple of months ago, we were on the lawn of the Senate, and we were able to get this amazing senator from Hawaii. You all should really support uh, Maisie Hirono. She's amazing. She happened to pick up a purple hula hoop. And she started to hula hoop. Um, and it was a picnic that we did. Uh, for Actually, it was with Moms Rising. Uh, and that moms deserve more than just a holiday. They deserve things that matter, like paid leave, childcare, all the things that moms actually need. And we had a party for little kids, and we had he she hula hooped. You had Senator Bennett sitting on a blanket reading a story. You had kids bouncing on little horses, and we were blasting Baby Shark. And yeah, so I think that kind of like when you bring those joy, and then it makes all the members show up, and it makes them actually get at eye level with kids. They see it, and they get there, and it gets it. So the more creative actions and got to get more senators hula hooping. Absolutely. And I love seeing a senator hula hoop, people. You can probably Google senators hula hooping and find that Moms Rising action if you want to smile along with us. Speaking of smiling along with us, what is bringing you, Melissa, hope and smiles in this moment for people particularly who are reading the news, they're feeling cynical, they're like looking around, they're like, this is hopeless. What's, what's the hopeful? I think for me, what's hopeful is, I mean, Kristen, I think I talked to you about free college and canceling student debt like 10 years ago when no one was really talking about it. And you're probably like, oh, that's a nice, nice idea. And now 
we have the president of the United States saying, no, 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 we're actually going to win cancellation. And, like, we're going to do it. It's no longer an issue where a few advocates are just kind of, like, talking about it. And people are, like, saying, that's cute and, like, patting you on the head. And now it's like, oh, it is the president of the United States. It is the full force of the U.S. government fighting for the people. Because I think what's really great about this is 40 million people know that there is someone in government who cares about them. And even if they don't solve all the problems, because it's, you know, this work is hard, they see that and they get that and they move from there. And that's how you build. And then people can like take that joy and take that into other areas because doomerism and just being like mad at everything, like anger can be a good motivator, but like anger isn't sustainable. So like you take that, that anger and passion and then get that into things. And then for joy, like what I did for my student debt organizing is we would go to the White House once a month. We brought a brass band and we would set, we set up a brass band outside of the staff entrance because we wanted the actual staff of the White House to see this positive protest for student loan relief. And we would have signs, you'd have a brass band and the senior staff would be like walking by and they all remember it and they, they liked the music and it shows that you can fight about really hard issues and not make people miserable in the process. And if you get them really hyped, then that hype is infectious and then they organize. And so you're basically organizing the people in power to then want to organize other people in power and then you get your your wins. I love it. We're going to dance the revolution in, people. We're going to dance it in. So pick your song, listeners. What's your walk-up song to dance in change? Think about it as you vote, as you call your member of Congress, as you take action online, offline, and get involved, stay involved. Never, ever, ever give up. Thank you so much, Melissa Byrne, for being with us. Thank you for saving us from student loan debt. Thank you for having me, and we'll keep fighting. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. But we'll be right back with our next guest live from Netroots in Chicago. from Netroots Nation in Chicago. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for learning with us. Thanks for listening with us. This segment and all of the segments from Netroots were done in collaboration with the Rick Smith Show. Rick Smith is one of the top shows in America and is on in most places across the country as well as online. Everyone should check out the Rick Smith Show. It's a great show. And thank you for diving in with us. We're going to jump right in with our next guest right now. Welcome back to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Ralfinkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a spectacular, spectacular, spectacular guest with us today, Hillary Holly of Care in Action. And we are here in action in Chicago at Netroots Nation. Welcome, Hillary. Hello. I am so excited to be here. I'm even more excited. Care in Action. My favorite words in there are actually all of them. All three words are equally my favorite. Care in Action. Do you want to start talking about action? Why does CARE need action now? Yes, CARE needs action now because essentially we're in a CARE crisis. Um, when we know that voters right now are talking about how the economy is top of mind for everyone. And what that really means when we get granular is childcare is completely unaffordable. So unaffordable, in fact, that parents are having to choose between going to work or staying home. Also, um, our childcare workers, they're not making enough money to make rent pay their mortgage. So they're having to leave these jobs that they love and do to go work in 
other places just to make more money. Um, we also have a crisis with people in what we call the sandwich generation, people who are not only trying to afford to take care of their kids, but also taking care of our elders, our aging populations. And we have a home care worker crisis as well because home care workers are averaging around $9 to $12 an hour, which is a completely unlivable wage. And so when we talk about putting care into action, we mean that we need to invest in this care infrastructure. So families, working families, women, I mean, shit, even men, everyone can work with dignity and make sure that when they're working or taking care of themselves, that our loved ones are also being taken care of too. People of all genders need to be able to be people. Can we just say it? Correct. We need to be able to be people. Correct. We need to be able to work if that's happening. We need to be able to raise our children if that's happening. We need to be able to make decisions about our own bodies if, when, and how we're going to have children. And when we look at the care in action segment of action, our action is so needed. One thing that you brought up that I just want to add to is you said something really, really, really important. We need to invest in care. And sometimes people think about that and they go, oh my gosh, I have only so much money. Why do you want me to spend more money on something? I do not have that more money to spend. Well, we are here, Hillary and I, to bust that myth that it is a lack of investment return when we invest in care. For example, you brought up childcare. Childcare now costs more than college people. That's Correct. ridiculous. If you were going to start saving for college, like you're supposed childcare, like you're supposed to save for college, you would start saving when you're seven years old. None of us can do that. But when we invest in things like childcare, home care, paid family medical leave, and paying care workers fairly, we get this really high return on investment. Childcare, for instance, for every one dollar in we get a minimum of $7 out later. And for people who are experiencing additional adverse impacts, we get $20 back later. So when we talk about invest in care, we're not talking about throwing money out the window. We're talking about getting money back in our own pockets, in our economy. And do you want to share a little bit about that and how that part gets left out and missed? Yes, because, well, take it a step further. So we have actually gotten some historical investments in the recent years. So for example, through the American Rescue Plan, But what we are seeing now is this money being blocked in Republican state legislatures or by Republican governors that are literally hoarding this money rather than giving it down to the family. So you want to talk about stimulating the economy. In 2021, we kept hearing, you know, the social infrastructure. We need for people to get back to work. However, like I just said, when people need to go back to work, they're like, okay, fuck, I need someone to now take care of my kids. Oh my God, that's going to cost around $10,000 a year. If you have a loved one with um, disabilities who might need some direct care support while you go to work, oh my God, now I need to help pay for someone to, you know, support my disabled loved one so they can go and live their life. Same thing with elders, you know? We want to make sure that our um, mom, our dad, our auntie, our uncle, whoever it may be, that they can make sure that they're, you know, getting their medications, that they're eating, they can go grocery shopping, and all of that takes money. And so when we hear about, oh my God, there's this worker shortage, we actually need to think about why do we actually have a worker shortage? And nine times out of 10, it is 
one, well, and it's all connected. They can't afford to literally go to work. And then two, and they, what we're seeing is these employers are not raising wages at the same time as we are seeing all of these expensive drastically, all these expenses also increase. Yep. And so if we cannot actually do this economic stimulation without investing in this care infrastructure, it just, it, it, it's actually impossible. It's totally impossible. Parents need safe enriching places for their kids to go so they can go to work. Yep. Kids need safe enriching places to go so they can thrive. Care workers need to be paid fairly so they can thrive too. And by the way, many care workers are also moms. And we also need businesses and our economy to have a care infrastructure so they can run. A lot of people don't realize that in the United States of America, 72% of our GDP is based on consumer spending. Who spends that money? Women and moms. 80% of the consumer purchasing decisions are made by women and moms. So when we don't have funds to spend, when we can't go to work, when we can't get paid fairly, guess what? No matter what gender you are or who you are, you're going to lose out. We all all lose out when women and moms lose out people. And so it's just so important. I love the care infrastructure policies because they are win, 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 win policies. They're wins, of course, for families. They're the right thing to do. But they're not just the right thing to do. They're the smart thing to do for our economy, for our businesses, for our country, all of that. What is your favorite thing about care infrastructure policies? I think one of my favorite things about the care infrastructure policies is that we're not just talking about supporting the families, we're also talking about supporting the workers. I want to make it really clear, you all, care workers, whether they're child care workers, home care workers, house cleaners, nannies, they have been excluded from being protected under labor law forever. They've actually never been included. You know, I've been talking a lot with people recently. Um, one of the first labor movements in this country post-Juneteenth was the Atlanta washerwoman movement. They were domestic workers who were not making money, and they were the moms of everyone in the city of Atlanta, and they were not making a livable wage. That was in 1881. We then go to 1930 when the labor movement comes and we get, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Guess who's excluded? Domestic workers. We then go into the civil rights movement. Domestic workers, black women, excluded then too. And now we are in a moment, finally, when we see this care infrastructure um, investment on the table, we see the administration and other Democrats actually prioritizing care as an economic issue but we're also including the workers. And I just want to say that is revolutionary. It is something that this country has yet to see. And that's my most exciting part of this whole care infrastructure. It movement. is so exciting. And, and while we're talking about workers, let's talk about the workers a little bit more, yes. which is if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can tell that one of the largest, most economically powerful parts of our workforce that's expected to be rising, not declining, in the coming decades is the care workforce. People are talking a lot about more AI, more bots, more automated everything. You cannot automate the care workforce. And so can you share a little bit more about the engine of the workers to fuel, again, not just our families, not just communities, but actually our country, that this workforce is here and is rising and needs to be paid fairly and to have workplace protections as well. Yes. So at some point, 
everyone is going to need care. Care is going to come up in their life in some way. And when I say everyone, I literally mean that. I mean, it will need to come up for, um, you know, those who are making well below the, living well below the poverty line to those who are literally close to being billionaires, right? And because what, and the reason why it is everywhere um, is because people age. It's a part of life. However, what happens is if these home care workers are not making a livable wage, sometimes, y'all, it actually makes sense for them not to go to work because they have to drive 30, 40 miles. And if you're only making $10 an hour, half of that is going into your gas tank. And, and if you have to pay for childcare, Correct. Same, same. And so then people are saying, you know what? This shift actually doesn't make economical sense for me. Therefore, I'm not going to come. And now you have a parent or someone who, you know, has to find someone to help care for a loved one in order for them to go to work. And then if they can't find it, they then have to call out of work or they have to try to work remotely. And then sometimes they don't have paid leave. These are compounding factors. And so if we do not take care of this, like you said, this booming workforce that is that actually might be the largest workforce in America within the next 10 years, this care, the, the care crisis will never get solved. It never just won't. get solved. And our economy will also implode. We had... The Federal Reserve Chair say mm -hmm. that we are behind in international competitiveness because of the fact that we don't have a care infrastructure. And so we know that we need this and we know that we're behind. And so just in closing, we have a little moment to talk about the fact that, you know, we're the only industrialized nation without access to paid family medical leave when a new baby arrives or a serious health crisis strikes. We're the only 166 countries have sick days. We do not. We don't have home care and community-based services. We are behind. What's it going to take to catch up? Can you give us a closing thought? Yep. I think one is we have to organize. We have to organize with the workers and we have to organize ourselves and we need to start showing up our power at every single level of government. Okay. We have to make sure that we are showing up to our school board meetings where they're talking about pre-K. We need to make sure that we are investing in universal pre-K and, and trying to talk trying to invest in zero to three. We were having a conversation with your colleague earlier about this. Um, we also then need to show up in state legislatures. There we have, like I said earlier, we have state governments that have these massive surpluses that need to come down. And we also need to show up on the federal level so we can continue um, getting these federal investments, but more. So we need to organize and show up. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on Hillary Holly Care in Action. Everybody join, support, stay involved. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but that's it for our coverage from Netroots Nation for this year. We'll be back there next year for sure. If you want to track, be involved, stay involved, learn more about Netroots Nation, just go to www.netrootsnation.org. Get involved. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of hope, a lot of change happening through Netroots Nation. Again, netrootsnation.org online. Stay tuned for our next guest. We'll be back in just a quick flash. Welcome back to Breaking Through. 
Brew with me, Kristen Rao Finkbinder, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Mary Kusler of the NEA, also known as the National Education Association, also known as working for you and the students of America every single day. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so thrilled that you're on because we have to explain some things to people. There have been befuddling destructive, dismaying attacks on teachers, on parents, on students, and on families, on the schools of America, happening across the country every single day by a highly funded, very vocal minority of people in America. And it is not everyone, we have polls to prove it, but it is loud. So what is happening? Well, listen, you know, first of all, let's just call out what we know is the core of our American education system. It is not just that connection between the educator and the student, but parents, grandparents, families have been a key part of making our public education system work in partnership with their educators at the local level. So while it's a little known secret that we don't really talk about because it's just a given, it's about time we start talking about the importance of that relationship, right, core and center. But fundamentally, we know that our public education system in America is an important cornerstone of our democracy. And so these forces that are coming after this vocal minority, as you rightly named it, coming after our educators, coming after our public education system, are the same people who are trying to dismantle our democracy. It is not a different group of people. It is all linked together. It is all linked together. And it's linked together. Actually, you can follow it in news and in history. When Donald Trump lost his bid for the Oval Office, which he did lose, by the way, people actually lost. Steve Bannon, his strategist in chief, said the way back to the White House is through the school boards. This is not happening on accident. They picked the school boards because there are 76 million mom voters in America. 76 million mom voters in America who have very little time between raising kids and working and all of that to do research and bust disinformation. And so hate issue after hate issue, wedge issue after wedge issue have been put out there in a blatant and really horrifying grab for voters with a lot of disinformation being pushed along the way. And the collateral damage is teachers and children and schools. And that is just absolutely what you said un-american it's unpatriotic it's unethical it's actually reprehensible and so really shining a spotlight on what's going on is the first step towards solutions but what is the second third fourth and fifth step towards solutions like what can people who are listening do yeah thank you so much for saying that because i think it would be remiss if i didn't come into this conversation not only as an advocate for our nation's educators, but also as a mom of a rising sophomore and a rising sixth grade. My boys are my my kind of weather, bellwether of what's going on in education in my local community. And I can talk all about this across the country, but I got to remember, even as a working mom, I need to get involved in my own kid's school at the school board level and know what's going on. So couple of things that I think are great first steps. First of all, everybody should rest and recharge as we live through these summer months and know what these awesome moments are with our kids. 
over the summer months. But as we move into this back to school window, it's really critical. Parents need to step up and remind their educators that they are there as partners. Our educators are feeling so beaten up, so down. They have people um, who are criticizing the way they teach their professional training to know how to access all of our students, to know how to teach all of our history, to know what we should uh, offer up differing opinions so our students are ready to live in the real world that they get out of. Making sure that you send a real clear message to the educators at your local school, your child's teacher, that you are there to support them and to be in partnership with them. That would go a long way towards boosting our students and our educators working together. The second thing that we need to do um, is we need to remember there was once a, a, a a Democrat in Congress by the name of Tip O'Neill, who was a speaker of the House of Representatives, who said the adage, all politics is local. So while as moms, we might be overloaded driving a soccer practice, getting kids to jobs, doing homework after school, we have to remember that while we may not have the capacity to engage in national politics, we have to show up at our local schools. And that doesn't just mean making sure we're keeping a pulse on when we need to show up and what the conversation is at our local school. If they're banning books, what that is about. We also have to show up when we're voting for our school budgets, making sure our schools are adequately funded, making sure we're holding our school board members uh, accountable if they're um, demonizing the educators, if they're limiting the curriculum, if they're cutting funding, all of these will make our local public schools not the cornerstones of democracy, but rather a drain on our democracy. And that is not what our future is. And the third is um, the millions of you who will one day listen to this. Um, you got to talk to your friends. You got to post on out on social media. We have to do our, our village as parents, as caregivers, to know that not everybody has the time to do everything. As I was went back to work as a new mom, I was grateful for some of my other moms who had the time and researched the best doctors, the best eye doctors, the best uh, dentists. I went to them and made sure, okay, thank you for doing that research. I now know where my kid needs to go. But similarly, make sure somebody's keeping track of what's going on in your local school district so that these, these vocal but very few out of town, in many cases, loud voices are not taking over our schools and that we're making sure our public schools remain a keystone to educating all of our students and preparing them for life and career after school. And listeners, what's at risk is really quite a lot. What's at risk is teachers being able to teach accurate history, people being able to be included. It's so much at risk. And because of this, and we'll get back to this in a moment, a lot of teachers are being pushed out of their jobs. They're leaving their jobs because it's just a toxic environment with this well-funded vocal minority saying just hateful things. But what I do want to share with you listeners is that we do have data that the moms, I like to say against liberty, I don't like to say for liberty, but the moms for liberty groups do not represent actual real moms or people in terms of their opinions. 
Our most recent research found that, for example, 94% of the moms in America support teaching honest history. 94%, again, of moms support teaching honest history. So it's only 6% of people who agree with the Moms for Liberty platform. Similarly, 78% of voting moms reject, I repeat, reject the book bans. Again, moms against liberty are in the minority. Here too, in terms of social emotional learning, 91% of voting moms believe that social emotional learning is key, including of course this mom right here who's on the radio with you. And again here too, moms for liberty are in the minority. And also important to raise is 82% of voting moms want LGBTQ inclusion in the classroom. So our surveys make it absolutely clear that the Moms for Liberty agenda is not a mom's agenda. It's not a women's agenda. It's not a parent's agenda. It's not a caregiver's agenda. It's confirming that the right wing education agenda is completely out of touch with what moms, parents, and women want. And it's really about that grab for votes, using hate to tear apart our communities as wedge issues to grab voters. Now, the impact of this toxic environment on teachers is huge. So we're looking not only at our school curriculum potentially being negatively impacted for our children, but also teachers having to leave the labor force when they're needed the most. We already had a teacher shortage because of these hate tactics. Can you share a little bit about the harm being done to teachers? Yeah, and and let's just even center right on it. We have states in this country where I, as a teacher, if I am an LGBTQ teacher, I can't even talk about my family. And to be in a work environment where you can't even say my wife and I did X over the weekend or my husband and I, if I was a male or male identifying, I can't talk about my kids in that way. Um, is a very unsafe environment for educators to work in. It would be for anybody to work in. And so what we know is that the one of the number one reasons why educators leave the classroom, according to the research that the NEA has done, is because politicians who know nothing about teaching and learning are making decisions that affect day-to-day -day in their classrooms. That loss of control one of the most inspiring things we've seen about that is more and more educators are running for public office. We've seen more and more educators stepping up to run for school board, to run for state legislature and on up. But we know that these school board races will only matter where we can have pro-public education candidates running. We should not be leaving any of these races uncontested. We need to make sure we're tapping into our entire community uh, to be uh, connected. I wanna actually call out an incredible experience uh, from this week of a, of a NEA member in South Carolina who was being um, really called out in her district. Uh, by uh, teaching her students the Tashante Coates book, Between the World and Me, and the quote-unquote parent outrage that this book was being used, uh, award-winning book was being used uh, in um, education in that district in South Carolina, there actually was a school board meeting where this was going to be one of the topics of the school board meeting. And these outraged parents were coming to protest 
And what was amazing was to see all of the parents who showed up in blue t-shirts in support of that educator. But what was really incredible was Tashanti Coates showed up at that school board meeting to sit, to not speak, but to sit in solidarity with that teacher. This is just one teacher. We have another teacher in Georgia who is on um, is being fired right now for complying with a student's request in her class, upper level class, to read a book called My Shadow is Purple, which is about LGBTQ and acceptance and understanding people come at it from all ends. She is being threatened. Her job is being threatened over this. And so we know these are just two egregious examples of what are many examples where our educators are putting their jobs on the line in support of their students, in support of teaching all of our students from all of their backgrounds and make, making sure regardless of their zip code or who they are, they are seen in the education they are being taught. And listeners, this is happening all over the country, again, because a vocal, highly funded minority of people are being really loud. But our polling shows, and we know from on the ground, that if you see something happening that's hateful, it's important to say something to make the hate stop and to know that you are not alone. Nine out of 10 people agree with you that we don't want hate in our schools, hate directed against our students or hate directed against teachers. Nine out of 10. Sometimes when that one person is really loud, it can feel like everyone's loud. Everyone agrees with them, especially when they're being hateful bullies. But again, nine out of 10 people agree that we don't want hate in schools. We don't want censorship. We don't want harm. So if you see something and you say something, which I hope you will, know you're not alone. The majority of people actually stand behind you. So thank you so much for being on. Mary, thank you for all that you do with the National Education Association, the NEA. Everybody who's listening, please check out the NEA and support and continue to support, continue to stay involved and stay hopeful because hope in the long term actually wins over hate. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen. We're going to take a break, everyone. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about wins in purple states and how you can make wins happen in every state. We'll be back in a quick flash. With me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a spectacular, inspiring, wonderful guest for you today. We have Mackenzie Nicholson of Moms Rising coming to you directly from New Hampshire. Welcome, Mackenzie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. New Hampshire has been on fire in a good way lately, as in passing proactive, positive policies. And I'm wondering if you could let our listeners know the good news coming out of New Hampshire that is setting an example for other states in the nation right now. We're so excited. New Hampshire had such a fantastic year in the legislature this year. We passed so many fantastic policies for moms and families. 
Um, most notably, and the biggest one that we saw this year was the passage of the Child Care for New Hampshire Working Families Act, which was a large child care omnibus bill that um, invests more than $60.5 million into the state's child care infrastructure, addresses a lot of issues with our child care scholarship system, hopes or rather helps families access affordable quality child care, and will help providers in the field stay in the field and feel valued. So huge child care success there. We're going to see families immediately seeing some huge improvements to the way that they access care in the state. Some of the real meaningful changes for families include some of the lowest income families on our state's child care scholarship program are no longer going to see a cost share when participating in the child care um, scholarship here. And all families on the state child care scholarship will see um, a family cost share of no more than 7% of family income, which is huge. We're really excited that as a purple state, we were able to be one of the ones who could pass this really um, important policy that impacts families' bottom line. And um, so that's all good news for child care in New Hampshire. And then for maternal health, we passed the New Hampshire Momnibus, which was a piece of legislation surrounding maternal health. It expands Medicaid coverage for postpartum and pregnant people from 60 days to one year, which is huge because we know that um, pregnant people experience complications of pregnancy for far longer than six weeks or uh, 60 days rather. And so we're very excited about that coverage. But that piece of legislation also mandates that Medicaid provide coverage for things like doula services. The fact that a mom who utilizes Medicaid can now have access to doula coverage is such a huge um, honor, frankly, and I'm so excited for moms here in New Hampshire. Um, it also requires coverage of things like donor breast milk and lactation services. There are some um, pregnancy worker fairness coverage protections in the bill, as well as some funding for family resource centers, which are working to help bridge the maternal and child health gap there. Um, other great things, New Hampshire passed Medicaid expansion this year for another seven years. Uh, Medicaid expansion is healthcare for low-income people. Um, it provides healthcare coverage to thousands of Granite Staters every year, and we're really excited to have that expansion happen again. And last but not least, the fourth sort of pillar of our wins this year were was defeating the Parental Bill of Rights legislation in the state, which was a direct attack against our LGBTQ kids here in the Granite State um, and would have put the people who support them and care at them in a really terrible position. So we were honored to be a part of the campaign to defeat that legislation and we were successful. And New Hampshire has officially won all those things this year and we are um, couldn't be happier to be a part of all of it. It is a hat trick of win, people. In soccer terms, when you get three goals, it's a hat trick. So there was a goal for child care and child care workers, a goal for maternal health, and a goal defeating book bans and parental wrongs. So I'm really excited. And as you mentioned, New Hampshire was a purple state. And in purple states, people think, oh, it's going to be impossible to pass things. Not. Um, these things, these policies are good for businesses, they're good for the economy, they're good for families. And so to me, it's not surprising at all that these policies have passed in a purple state. When you break them all down, for instance, childcare, parents need safe enriching places for their kids to be so that they can go to work. 
Kids need safe and enriching places to be so they can thrive. And childcare workers need living wages and a career and wage ladder so they can stay in a profession that is so important for building the leaders of tomorrow and our economy of today. So just take that policy alone and let's break that one down. And, and can you share a little bit about what Moms Rising members in New Hampshire did to help pass that policy in particular? Yeah, one of the things that Moms Rising does particularly well in New Hampshire is meet moms where they're at. And we really try to think about in terms of setting our priorities for the year, what are we hearing from families? What are they really experiencing? And this year, more than anything, we heard childcare, we heard access uh, and affordability issues, uh, childcare desert issues. And that is our lane. We are able to bring caregivers, people who have those experiences having affordability challenges with childcare to the legislature. And Moms Rising being one of the only organizations who actually brings parents with real stories to the table. And the way that we've done that is through some deep relational community building. We have fantastic volunteers in New Hampshire who have built a community of support and trust. Um, They trust us with their story, which is inherently embedded in trauma. And they are on a journey with us to learn about how their trauma can turn into advocacy and change for other families. And so our volunteers show up in different ways for legislative change. Sometimes it might not always be that they're testifying at the legislature. It could mean that they're sending an email to their legislator or making a phone call or showing up to an event. Or even we have some members who prefer to just support members who are doing the legislative change. We even had one member this year who um, wasn't ready to be a part of the sharing their story, but helped get people to the state house helped support them through that process and even brought them farm fresh eggs as a thank you from Moms Rising um, for being there on that day. So we're able to do that because of the community that we've built and the advocates that we have in our back pocket. And we honestly couldn't do it without them. We're so thankful for them. And can you share, you mentioned stories and stories are powerful and stories help move from trauma to change and all of that caught my interest, I'm sure caught the interest of our listeners, more importantly, can you share a little bit more about how that works? Why in depth are stories powerful and how do they help move from trauma to action? I think our stories just humanize us, right? We're all on this journey together. Something that I say to my kids often is I'm doing XYZ for the first time. And so I'm being a mom of a 10-year-old boy for the first time, or I'm whatever the problem of the day is. And we don't, I'm not sure we do that enough. We don't get real human with each other enough. And when we humanize rather sort of the challenges that we face as families, I think like we can understand each other better. There's a deeper level of understanding and our legislators are people too. They're, we are the third largest legislature in the world. Um, They are working people. They're only paid a hundred dollars a year. And so for them in New Hampshire, you all wait, yes, hold on. We're just going to say that in New Hampshire, legislators are paid $100 a year, a year to serve. And there are 424 of them and about two, 20 to 30% of them every two years are brand new. So it really takes work on the half of grassroots advocates and frankly, constituents to like talk to their lawmakers, tell them what the issues are bring them up to speed on policy issues. And it's reflected in the work that we did at the legislature this year. We 
we hit the ground running and helped everyone get up to speed. And we did it with our volunteers and our coalition members together. Yeah, it's so important. And let's talk a little bit now about maternal health and maternal health equity. The United States of America is the only World Health Organization country, the only industrialized nation in the world where we have more people dying in childbirth rather than less. Maternal mortality is sadly rising. And Black women are three times as likely as white women to die on childbirth. We have a crisis. And New Hampshire is stepping up to that crisis. How did activists, um, people who are advocates, people in the community help address that crisis? I'm asking because it's a crisis nationally, and I bet a lot of people are wondering what they can do in their states to help address this crisis as well. Do you have tips? I think the first step, right, is having these really tough conversations about what does that mean? What does health equity and health disparity mean? And what does that mean for women of color, specifically Black women and Latinx women? We are doing them a disservice. There was new data that came out recently that showed that for the past 20 years, maternal mortality has more than doubled. Um, And so we have to start looking internally, like what are the policies here that are in place that are causing some of these uh, disparities to exist? And frankly, it's that we don't have in our country access to culturally competent, relevant care that women and pregnant people need. Um, And we do that to especially a disservice to women of color. And so this legislation by giving folks access to a doula, for example, which is something that women of color may utilize more often than women who are white. This is going to cover that for them. And so bringing that culturally relevant, competent care that women feel comfortable with when they're pregnant is a piece of that. So moms showed up to the legislature uh, and we sent emails. We called uh, lawmakers to talk about maternal health. And the really interesting um, piece of this is that, you know, Moms Rising volunteers tend to be women, not always, but often. And uh, lawmakers in New Hampshire tend to be men, not always, but often. And so in the hearing room for the Momnibus, we had a volunteer uh, share an incredibly powerful story and Jaws hit the floor. And I think for the first time ever, after sharing her story, something clicked in the that room specifically, I think for all minds, but specifically for um, men in the room at understanding why access to maternal health care is so critically important for all women. Yeah, for sure. You talked about defeating the parent bills of wrongs that came out about book bans and censorship and just yuck in New Hampshire. Do you have advice for people if something like that comes to the state where they live? I would say the banned books and hate spaghetti, as Kristen so much loves to call it, which I love, by the way, um, is, I think, starting to pop up in places Um, and maybe they're not as clear about who they are and what they're doing. And so they're trying new tactics to kind of sneak into our legislatures, the sort of hate spaghetti legislation um, surrounding parental bills of rights and banned books and, um, you know, athletics and that kind of thing. It's popping up. And so be vigilant and ask a lot of questions. Stay curious, as my friend Ruth would say, about... um, ideas, policies that are happening, even at the local and school board level, because these small ideas are what spark these bigger pieces of legislation, these small, hateful thoughts um, have turned into these growing movements, like Moms for Liberty, for example, um, that have spread hate. And so stay vigilant, ask a lot of questions, 
And when they do come up, talk to other parents, you know, and I think you'll find that you'll, you'll hear that moms and parents don't want things like this and speak out. For sure. When you hear something, say something. One of the things I think is really important is that this hate spaghetti situation where lots of different policies that are intended to disturb us, to divide us, to distress us, um, are really about grabbing votes. So we know that what's trying to happen is particular hate policies are being used as wedge issues in the voter files with the eye on the 76 million voters who are moms in America and grabbing more mom voters. So if you hear something hateful, listeners, check the source consider the source. There's a lot of disinformation out there. There's a lot of things out there that actually aren't true. And it's spawning really harmful policy to quote, solve and quote, problems that don't actually even exist. So if you hear something hateful, if you hear something divisive, check the source before you believe it and take action to unite and build a nation and a state where people can thrive instead of break it apart. Thank you so much, Mackenzie. Thank you for all you do. Congratulations on your trifecta, your hat trick of wins in New Hampshire on childcare for childcare workers, for parents and for workers, also on maternal health and on defeating yucky anti-parent legislation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap up, I want to encourage everybody and everybody who's ever had a mother, everybody who has a belly button to go to www.momsrising.org. Sign on. It is free. And we will reach out to you directly on a regular basis to give you avenues to make your voice heard so you don't have to do the work of researching when, where, why, and how your voice is heard. We do that research for you. So go to www.momsrising.org and sign up today. It's free. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here it goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. Fight for love.